Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in Sports Cars listener-driven episode. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin on the other end of the line. It is well past midnight in the UK for our ace reporter, editor of DailySportsCar.com, and also comms man, commentator, you name it, WEC, Asian Le Mans Series, ELMS, he's everywhere. Uh, well, I'm some places. I mainly do IMSA. <laughs> Graham, this is going to be our first ever Time Attack episode Ooh, right. of the Week in Sports Cars. We're not covering Time Attack on the episode. We have one hour or less, because I think we're going to have you snoring before we get to the end. So we said sure. we're going to get to our first question within the first minute. You select the categories. What's a category? What's a question? Can I just make it very clear that if we don't meet the hour, we won't be asking for this to be cancelled until after January, correct? Yes, and we just blew Excellent. getting to that first question in the first minute, so hurl uh, <laughs> obscenities my way. Go, I failed as a let's producer. Go for, let's go for IMSA. What? Let's do it. Let's do it. And we're going to start off with a good friend, Ryan Terpstra. And Ryan says, so, Laguna Seca IMSA race. Is it gone yet? Maybe could they try and replace it with Barber Motorsport Park? Since that's somewhat near Florida, says he. What say you? Huh. I would say this, and I'm forgetting the exact hashtag that you coined. I'm coming from a place of zero knowledge on this, I think was your hashtag. I don't have any insider information I can offer at this point, Ryan, on the Laguna side, other than to say, with IndyCar announcing they are not going, I have heard some rumblings, some some things that some of the at least one or two of the series that are meant to follow in the calendar aren't totally sure if they want to be the very first series to have an event run by the circuit's new track manager. And this isn't someone who is experienced in running motor racing events. So that is the reticence that has bubbled up a little bit. That's not questioning their ability to run an event, Ryan. It's, do we want to be the first? Uh, so I think that might be something to ponder. And if we were to see either IMSA or some of the other major series headed their way, decide to opt out, that could be part of it. Not a lack of confidence in their overall ability, just... Maybe we want to be the third, fourth, or fifth ones uh, after you've had some practice at doing this. So that's one thing I would suggest. I believe 2010, 2011 is the last time I recall Grand Am going to Barber. Uh, I know I was there to cover an event uh, specifically to do the Grand Am side. Also did a little bit of IndyCar back then. But uh, I know that there has been a longstanding wish for IMSA to get back there. If we were to lose Laguna and gain Barber, would that surprise me? Probably not. Final, final thing to mention here, with the timing of the schedule, as it's laid out right now, this ongoing adjustment to schedules and such in IMSA, the plan, I think, would be to leave Road Atlanta, drive all the way out to California for Laguna, and then go back and have another event shortly after that as well. That's another thing that I think might be a contributing factor to the, huh, are we going to go all that way just for one race and come right back on a pretty short turnaround both ways, you know, coming in and out of events as well. And I think that might be a factor to consider as well. 
Okay, got a couple of questions on the variety of subjects about the GT classes in EMSA. Let's start with Matt Anderson, uh, who says, would it be uh, really be that disadvantageous, excuse me, for EMSA to develop their own GT class rules instead of adopting a global platform like GT3, or for that matter, GTLM, I guess, with budgets becoming nearly unsustainable? Um, GTD, GTLM likely going away. Why not go back to a lower cost, lower tech philosophy like they had in the 80s and 90s, similar possibly to Grand Am's GT rules? Well, hmm. I don't know if I would say the 80s and 90s necessarily fit into that argument so much, Matt. If we're talking 80s, IMSA, GT style racing, even Trans Am. We are talking tube frame, everything bespoke. And while the costs weren't insane, since most of the it, all the cars were handmade out of metal and such compared to carbon as they are today, uh, in many instances, these were still very costly, super high-tech cars. We did get into the 90s a bit where we went a little bit more road going and such. Uh, I hear you. I would say GT3 is the thing that many of us have talked about, saying that's probably going to be the accepted format going forward once the GTLM um, formula expires. No question about the costs in IMSA related to GTD being so high. That is not 100% related to the vehicle, I would say. I would say you definitely need to include... The fact that since we have had the merged series, the amount of racing done in GTD per year, 24-hour, 12-hour, 6-hour, 10-hour, just <laughs> it's a lot more racing than the individual either GT2-based ALMS class or Grand Am's Rolex GT class than either one of those did. And so more racing, more travel, more more everything, plus consuming the vehicles, uh, consumables, that's where the budget spike has come from. So just little thing to ponder here. If we think about what's cheaper, what's easier, what's so on and so forth, what I expect, and I think what many of us expect, I know, Graham, you've spoken about this as well, what, what we anticipate is going to be the thing. We're going to go to an all-GT3 formula. We're going to have a pro and then have a pro-am manufacturers make those gt3 cars so there's a manufacturer component which uh imsa certainly does not want to get away from that's a, a pretty important profit center for them also important promotional center for those manufacturers also think about the resale value mm -hmm. now, these gt3 cars tend to hold pretty good value and be prized around the world so if you're done racing your thing here in america who knows there could be somebody in dubai that wants to buy it for whatever uh, racing they might do there, pick some other place or vice versa, pick something up from somewhere else in the world. So I hear you. We could certainly dial things down a bit to more of the GT3 cup uh, and whatnot, but really got to think about the manufacturer interests to sell the cars, uh, for them to pr promote them. Uh, also for those who buy them to have the ability to sell them uh, universally. And that wouldn't necessarily be the case uh, with some of the other types of formulas we're discussing, at least to a high degree of interest. A guy with a Ferrari 488 Challenge car here in America 
you're probably not going to have someone in Italy salivating to get that car. Probably something closer to home they could buy. GT3 tends to be a little bit higher uh, echelon in that regard. And I gather, by the way, uh, apropos nothing in this debate, that the resale values of GT3 cars holding up extremely well, uh, and in particular in this economic downturn when uh, you've got actually an asset that's got value, uh, they seem to be holding up particularly well. Sticking with the GT3 GTD general theme, our friend Right Turn Lover from Switzerland. Hi there, Gazer. Uh, how realistic is the chance of the Callaway Corvette to appear in IMSA? Uh, perhaps uh, with gear racing. Historically, GM not enthused by the idea of the Callaway running in the US, although I believe that was changed some little time ago. Shouldn't, by the rules, the Callaway have been outlawed by now? He doubts uh, 20 have been built. Would be happy for an appearance. Uh, I think that 20-car rule has been, for the most part, uh, conveniently forgotten. Blind eyes turned right turn lover in that regard as i have been told gm would not stand in the way of the callaway c7 corvette being homologated uh, for use in imsa but would also not help in any way not spend a dollar not anything if somebody wanted to do it whether it was callaway or a gear racing wanted to bring the car in 100 percent on their dime Leave us out of it. We won't. We won't stop it. Whereas they would have before, since they've now moved to the C8 uh, that they're competing with in GTLM. But I think the main issue is this: it would have to be someone other than Gear Racing. Uh, no disrespect to uh, the gentleman who started that team, but all the things that I've heard about there's no money issues. Money's good. Everything's good going forward. I haven't heard anything to make me believe any of that is accurate. I hope I'm wrong, obviously. Would love to see that car. More teams, more variety, more everything. Those are all the things I think anyone would want. Would say that if there's a true Callaway Corvette, gotta have it type person, then they need to step up with mud and make it happen because I don't think it's going to happen with gear. Okay. Uh, let's have a quick look. Here's a good one from Alex Eichmiller. With NASCAR moving their Watkins Glen race to the Daytona Road Course, curious to where their lap times would slot into the IMSA class structure. Who do we know? Who do we have to bribe? He says to get a NASCAR class at next year's 24. And how many brake changes would they need? Well, Alex, I like you was curious to find out how they stacked up as well. And then I read a story today from Racer.com's Kelly Crandall documenting that NASCAR has decided on the topic of brakes and concerns about wearing them out, has a new plan to install a chicane, exiting NASCAR Oval Turn 4, more or less as you get, I believe, before you get to pit lane, but in that general area. So we're not really going to have a direct comparison unfortunately because they're throwing a they've thrown a chicane into our plans and unfortunately i i love the idea of a nascar class invitational class i've heard rumor of something on this front actually alex and i have not had a chance to explore it more you know why because until you sent this in i totally forgot about it (laughs) (laughs) 
So have had, of course, have had NASCARs at Le Mans before. Yes, yes, yes. And we've had, you know, there have been many NASCARs that have competed uh, in IMSA. Granted, not necessarily the coming straight out of the tech shed, uh, fully NASCAR approved form, but, you know, something that is an ex NASCAR chassis. Um, so again, that's happened many, many times in the past, but I am making a note here, NASCAR special invite class question mark. Thanks, Alex. There we go. I'll tell you what. I'm, now I'm, I won't forget. I'm going to set something up here for our listeners. And it's a bit of a Twitter challenge when you listen to this one. Drop me a line back. You tell me when was the last time that a NASCAR or NASCAR-esque chassis took place, it took part rather, in an international 24-hour race. I do know the answer. We should also do something radical in our Time Attack episode, Graham Goodwin, of telling them what their freaking Twitter handle is so they know who to send it to. That's a very good one. It's at DSC Editor. And if you want to copy Marshall as well, it's at Marshall Privet. Uh, that's P-R-U-E-T-T, because he is, of course, the great uncle of the great Scott Privet. Hashtag not true. Thank you, finally, for revealing that. Uh, should we chug through any more IMSA before we go to something else? Should we? I don't know. You tell me. we got limited time, man. We're going to. We're going to take one that's a nice segue, really. It's from Pablo Reyes uh, Garadina. Uh, apologies, Pablo, if I've uh, mispronunciated that. That's usually my um, job. Absolutely. Any information on how cool and unique the LMDH cars should and could look? Wondering if they'll have enough freedom to create truly great-looking and highly differentiated cars, or if they'll be highly limited in design by the LMP2 hardpoints with just a bit of added bodywork to distinguish them. Hoping for revival? of amazing-looking prototypes, aren't we all? But don't want to set my expectations too high. Keep up the good work, says Pablo. Thanks, Pablo. Haven't seen anything. Wish I had. I'd feel special and knowledgeable if I had. <laughs> I can only share with you, Pablo, some of the things that I've heard, and that is, yes, there will be a stronger mandate for more visual differences from car to car if we think of what's on track right now the mazda looks unlike any of the other prototypes the acura with the hockey stick across uh bridging the front fenders looks unlike anything else very easily identifiable there are some other attributes that you could say as you go farther back in the car uh, along its bodywork, you might be able to say, oh, that that's definitely a Mazda. That could be a Cadillac. Um, Is it the but, word Acura on the side that gives it away? I think you just unpicked my ability to tell oh. the differences. But Damn. to the to the finer point that I think you're mentioning here, Pablo, or the thing that you're hoping to see, it's very easy to spot the difference between the three current DPI cars, uh, chassis running, when viewed from the front or either coming straight at you in a shot or up, you know, if you're at the track or three quarter coming at you, but basically some form of coming at you from the side, just dressed in black carbon, no paint. Again, you might be able to spot a couple things, but I don't think the average person could tell one from the other easily. 
and from behind or going away. Also, you know, there are some cues if you really know what you're looking for, but if not, probably not. Bottom line is, with what we have, if you're not looking at the cars coming straight at you or at some sort of angle but front-based, you lose the differentiation. This is where I believe IMSA is going to call for more changes. The big honking fin, as our pal Andy Blackmore uh, coined it on the, you know, the back of the cars running down that spine from the engine cover connecting to the rear wings. Don't believe that's going anywhere. So that'll be something that is uniform, but I am curious to see what they might do with allowances with, uh, probably not the side pods because I don't think you're going to, I don't think CFD and aero education would allow or would really lead any manufacturer to do something drastically uh, different with the looks of their side pods. But could it be fender treatments? Could it be rear wing treatment, end plate treatment, I should say? Could one have a curved upper element or either curving up or curving down? What kind of things can be done so that from any angle, you can absolutely tell one chassis apart from the other. Last thing that I've heard, and this just reinforces the one thing that's currently working, Pablo, and that is the nose area, is there will be even more brand ID built in to what we have uh, already with the noses of the vehicles. Cadillac is the only one that jumps out that I don't think has anything that really makes you think Cadillac. It's not as if when you look at the Acura, you go Acura, but at least the significant change to the nose you can attach to the prototype, not the road cars necessarily. With the Cadillac, which I love the way it looks, there's nothing that makes it say Cadillac road car or really jump out on track is truly unique. Lining up the three to stare at them head on, I think the Cadillac stands out because of its lack of difference it's a you can spot it by the inverse of change so i think these are these are things we're going to have to get to pablo if imsa is really going to make a difference with this next formula and with that said uh, are we done yep yeah, i think we, yeah we'll switch on to uh work aslam's elms narco i think next and that means it is indeed your regular time to fling them at me like a frenzied chimp I am going to, it's a vomitorium of questions here. Excellent. All right, Daniel Summersgill, who I believe powers the rest of the episode, every single question's (laughs) from Daniel, even for those who sent in questions who happen to be named something other than Daniel Summersgill. We're renaming you in this Time Attack episode. Everyone's Daniel Summersgill from now on. Uh, we love you, Daniel. We're not actually taking the pee out of here. We're to just join ourselves. He is resubmitting this for the... 95th time. Yeah, 95th time. All right, brother. We're going to do it, and it's leading off what as a Melnzeko. Why are the ACO so reluctant, Graham, to allow viewers to have access to decent live timing? At the last ELMS meeting, the excellent Alcamel system, systems, the live timing, was available for qualification but not for the races. During the race, live timing was only accessible via the ELMS website. The live timing service on there was appalling. It's not even possible to determine how long was remaining as the clock was constantly on 23 hours to go in a four-hour race. During the IMSA race at Sebring, the Alcamel site was accessible for qualifying and the race. We have an angry Daniel 
who wants to know, and he's wanted to know for a while, please take the thorn out of his paw. Uh, right, okay. Um, I'll certainly speak to them about it and find out why. Uh, the one reason why I can't really answer this accurately is because I was there. Had I not been there, I'd probably have exactly the same irritations that you've got here, Daniel. But because I was there, I wasn't looking at online lifetiming. I was actually physically looking at the screens. And that would be the case if I'd been in the TV booth as well, because we have obviously access to that there too. But I have heard there were some, how can we put this, issues uh, with the way that system was actually working. Uh, I will ask the question pretty directly, um, working with the series on a couple of things at the moment uh, to try to make the uh, experience of following this, in particular while we're, you know, with very limited access from people externally to the uh, the immediate LMS family uh, to see what we can do to actually improve matters. And I'll put that on the relatively short list of things that I think we can actually do some, some work on. Um, I, I will say this. I'm not a fan of the way that the timing systems are actually being presented with the web products for a couple of series that we involve ourselves with. I'd rather there was a bit more standard, if you like. Um, The fact that most of them tend to use one of three separate timing providers should mean that that's reasonably simple. Uh, But they do seem to want to put a little bit of their own kind of, a little bit too much of their own style into it. And unfortunately, sometimes with that style, I tend to agree with you, we lose quite a bit of substance. I'll do what I can to, to, to see what can be done to fix it. I just heard back from the series, Daniel. They said they are going to fix this. You're going to be able to get live Alchemel timing and scoring all sessions. Unfortunately, no sound, no video. But you're going to be Absolutely. able to get the yeah. So, but that's just for you. So I think. Well, at least, uh, but, uh, by the look of things, at least one of the races we've got to come no cars either. But uh, we'll wait and see if that one goes. There Hashtag we go. They are going to keep the 23 hours to go thing going just to just to drive you mad, Daniel. And hey, some <laughs> other person named Daniel Summersgill says, wow. "Do you know why Thomas Laurent has left his role with Toyota? And when he arrived in the team, he seemed destined for big things. Also, what do you think of his replacement, Nick DeVries? Hashtag me personally. He has serious potential following his performance in F2 and in LMP2. I completely agree. I think Nick DeFries is a star in the making. Uh, I have no information as to whether Thomas uh, is bound for another program. I suspect in this instance it's one of two or both of the following things. One, his contract was up. That much is absolutely true. Two, they may well think that he's not as quick or has got as good a level of feedback, which is far more important than just being quick for a test and development driver than the remarkably fast Mr. DeVries. I'm a big fan of when you can see just how special a driver is in a spec race car. There's not many people who've done that through the history of LMP2 and LMP3 racing. Mike Conway was certainly one of them. Uh, Bruno Senna had a stellar uh, year in LMP2 in the WEC. Thomas Laurent has been in a group, but maybe not an immediate absolute standout in that group. Nick de Vries is the man at the moment. Uh, he's, you know, he is um, so quick in an LMP2 car every time he gets aboard it. There are uh, others having to push all the harder that is making the racing all the better and uh, i think it's his 
a combination of his speed plus the fact that if you get an opportunity to read the press release that uh, came with the announcement that Nick was coming as test development driver, the Toyota Gazoo Racing Team made it very clear they were very impressed indeed with the way he uh, conducted himself and his feedback from the one-off test at that stage that there was at the rookie test at Bahrain at the end of last year. So I think the answer is, I think they believe he's the better package. Nick DeVries should be competing in Formula One right now and should be doing things at least similar, if not identical, in terms of achievement as to what young Lando Norris is doing. Pick super impressive young drivers, and Nick should be in an... The guy has done the work to make us believe with his success and title in F2. Who who knows? By the time this actually goes online, he might be. Uh, We've got a problem, of course, in the Formula One paddock at Silverstone this evening with Sergio Perez. Perez. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, now what's the engine in the back of that car? Well, the person expected to line up in that is indeed 2015 Le Mans winner, young Mr. Super Sexy German. What should we call him? Wasn't Nick Tandy. Wasn't a certain <laughs> Kiwi by the name of Earl Bamber. Who is that third person, Graham Goodwin? That would be Nico Hulkenberg. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. You know, I'd love to see Nick DeVries get a one-off go in that. Amen. Uh, let's see. All right. Someone else named Daniel Summerskill during the excellent really? Inside the Sports Car Paddock episode last week. McLaren CEO, United Auto Sports co-owner Zach Brown seemed to indicate that LMP2 could disappear when LMDH starts. Graham, do you think that there's a risk Hypercar will be the sole top class and LMDH becomes a new LMP2 similar type deal uh, like we had in the late 2000s with Porsche, the Porsche RS Spider era? Uh, it's an interesting one. No, I don't. I don't think that's the, the likely scenario. I think the likely scenario is that hypercar will become, you know, part of the same class for as long as it is that in particular, the two larger factories, that they being Tota, and we still believe Peugeot uh, will go for a hypercar uh, version of the of the of the rule book um, at the moment. I think LMDH will be numerically the dominant one if everything goes even remotely close to the plans we believe are actually out there right now. Uh, Zach's point on LMP2 was a very interesting one, and I have to tell you, it's caused a lot of traffic, um, both email and uh, telephone traffic to me from a variety of people around uh, the sports car, the sports car racing world. Remember this: current LMP2 started in 2017. Uh, we know already uh, that we are not going to get new LMP2 cars until at least a year after LMDH starts. If you go down the road of, um, I think taking the the uh, the uh, the cue that it's likely we're not going to see LMDH till 2023. That means no new uh, LMP2s until 2024. That gives those current LMP2 cars quite the life, actually. Um, Whether or not a key part for any of those four manufacturers is the fact that they'll have the opportunity to uh, monetize their, uh, their chassis 
uh, investment across LMP2, I think will be a telling case. Whether or not the LMP3, the new LMP3s, would be deemed to be safe enough in that company is another issue too. Uh, the point I'd make here, MP, is uh, I put together a brief kind of news notebook after the LMS uh, race weekend just a couple of three days ago. In terms of the pace of those LMP3 cars in their first race, and there were issues for those cars in that first race, they are already less than a second off in terms of fastest lap pace, uh, the pace of the previous generation of LMP2 in the hands of one Mike Conway, uh, a man who was a big standout. So, look, with a bit more development, with a bit more time, with a few fewer issues in terms of fuel consumption and uh, some other looming issues that they had across the race with, uh, I believe, electronics for one of the chassis, pretty widely known. There were some problems with rear wings on the other chassis. Uh, more news of that in the next couple of days. Um, the The answer here is I think we're within the realms of pre-Gibson-powered LMP2 cars for the current brand of LMP3. But here's the nub, half the price of the current LMP2 cars. It might be that uh, the powers that be across Europe and North America do feel in the context of what we might be looking at next year uh, in terms of potential car counts, that you cannot ignore the potential to boost the grids for cars that I believe are within the performance window anyway. You can't afford to ignore that. Um, Zach's not always right, okay? Uh, very many times he's not right. And I think what was he doing here? Was he fishing? He most certainly was. Do United Autosports have a reason for fishing? Well, they have a very highly effective LMP3 uh, outfit indeed, multi-title winning LMP3 outfit. Do I think he's a million miles off the mark? No, I don't. I think it's it's absolutely a part of the puzzle that needs to be and should be debated. Whether or not it comes to pass, well, that's yet another hashtag wait and see, and that's a lot of wait and sees at the moment. Uh, well, we'll wait and see in your wait and see there, Goodwin. Uh, okay, we're going to stick on a similar thing here. You got into a lot of it, but uh, I do love this angle from Daniel Summersgill, who, oddly enough, is going by the name Right Turn Lover in this question. Says, oh. uh, regarding Zach Brown's thoughts on abandoning LMP2 in favor of LMP3, what would happen to the price of an LMDH chassis if those cars are not also sold as LMP2s? That's a yeah, really good seen. one. That that would be it's a, a really crazy good. spike for manufacturers. Uh, it, well, it would. Well, I, th- I guess it's this. It depends on just exactly how the the commercial model is going to be built into this. Give you a couple of uh, reasons why I asked the question in that particular way. Who pays up front? Do the manufacturers committing to that chassis pay up front? Are they the ones that are carrying the development costs for that chassis? Or is that going to be amortized across expected sales a year later? My guess is manufacturers are paying up front. I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, and it came in not that long ago with Rebellion Racing and the Rebellion R1, based around the Orica 05, later the 07 uh, chassis. So the same basic chassis for all three. The LMP1 cars... You know the uh, the safety bar across the center of the cockpit where you can hinge that away? 
to get uh, driver extraction from the opposite side of the car. That measure came a year early to LMP1 than it did for LMP2. Uh, therefore, had to be added to an existing design. Rebellion Racing ended up paying the vast majority of the development costs for that, despite the fact that Orica knew full well that measure was coming for LMP2 the following year, and therefore they would have a fully developed solution that they could just roll out into their rather more extensive numbers of LMP2 cars. I do wonder mm. exactly how the uh, the way this is actually going to work. But I, I guess look at this way, MP. If you if you turn up with uh, an LMDH chassis that has got one or maybe a very small number of takers, or perhaps multiple takers from the same um, general hatchery, VAG, for instance, PSA, who knows, then it surely makes sense for them to influence the way in which that chassis is constructed and designed to suit best the way that they would like their factory-bred LMDH to actually arrive. The compromise then comes from the subsequent use of that chassis for LMP2 a year later. My guess is, if you're coming into LMDH, you're coming in to win. Um, there are clearly going to be pressures in terms of the money that you're going to be spending, but there's always ways around those things. My view is that uh, the LMDH... Uh, factory developments will be the ones that fund effectively the development of those chassis for later use and later, uh, you know, later commercial exploitation by any or all of those four chassis makers that wish to use it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, crazy, crazy times here. Let's go to Geronimo Lazo says, Hey there, it's great to keep hearing from you. Your polished turd is it's smelling better than ever. Why? Thank you. <laughs> uh, ELMS, after the great comeback race of Le Castellet, became painly, painfully obvious that the LMP2 have become uh, Formula Areca, same as in WEC. Why has it happened so sudden? Mentions last year we had some Ligiers and Delaras. Do you foresee any possibility of a change? Feels like okay. it's been Formula Areca for a while. Again, I realize you could have a sprinkling of some others, but feels to me like it's been a little longer than that, but maybe I'm off. Well, oddly enough, we do have both a Ligier and a Delara for the WEC race at Spa in three weekends' time. Don't get my weekends correct here. Uh, we write, uh, absolutely right, uh, that we've only got the one Ligier there. I think there's two or three things. We know that the Ligier, sorry, the, um, or the Delara, rather, has had its problems in terms of aerodynamic efficiency. There are still those out there, very sensible people out there, that say, get the right team, get the right driver lineup, and that Delara can be a weapon. Case of the prosecution, look at Guido van der Garde and some of his early race exploits aboard uh, the Delara before the, uh, the racing team, Netherlands team, uh, switched across. Uh, I think it's it's uh, the 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 Orica is certainly a better prospect for a gentleman driver. Let's put it that way. The other looming issue that keeps coming forward uh, is this, and it's it's not a particularly um, pleasant one to have to say, but it's I think a commercial and an engineering reality. Think about this as you get the teams preparing for their season and looking for the partnerships they think will make the difference. One of the things that they believe can make a difference is the choice of tyre manufacturer. 
course, Michelin and Goodyear in LMP2 for the moment at least. Um, clearly, the ones in most demand are the more successful teams. And clearly, in recent years, those most successful teams have, for the most part, been sporting Oricas. So just exactly which chassis are the tyres designed around? Think of that for a moment and wonder why it is that what we found are teams that were running Ligiers, stand-up Panis Bartis, stand-up United Autosports, why they're all of a sudden uh, running Oricas. And by the way, universally saying that they're immediately finding time by doing so. There we go. I should also mention I, I misread the person's name. It was not Geronimo Lazos. That was indeed Daniel Summerskill. Uh, <laughs> let's see. We did about 18 minutes in IMSA. Why don't we do roughly 18 minutes here in WEC, Aslam Elms Echo? Where might we go for the final one here? Someone pretending to be Nick Smith. I know it's Daniel trying to uh, sneak Again. in. Uh, says, hi, gents. Uh, 2021-2022, Weck Aslam's Elms Aco. Only two currently running on the P1 race-winning chassis due to the mu- due for the museum in October. Uh, the ACO is really going to need a new top class for just next year alone and possibly 2022, as most LMP1-style hybrid uh, hypercars could be delayed by COVID-19. Uh, let's see. Why don't we just take that one? Uh, yeah, do uh, that. Well, uh, Nick okay. slash Daniel has a few others, but thoughts there uh, on whether you've well, heard if there could be some grandfathering that wasn't really intended uh, when this whole converge pervergence was announced. <laughs> well, they always did say that they they would do so if there was demand to do it. They said that very specifically at the uh, the Sebring press conference. You'll recall that we sat in in that uh, delightful porter cabin uh, at the back of the Sebring paddock. The um, the answer here is this. So for the season, we've had, notionally at least, five LMP1 cars. We've had a one-off from a second uh, Rebellion, which we'll get a second one-off for for, uh, for Le Mans, not at Spa as it was promised. We've obviously had a kind of rather staccato effort from the two Ginettas. We'll see one of those back at the Le Mans 24 hours. I don't think we're going to see that again for the remainder of the year. Um and we'll have the Bicolas back. So it's around the kind of five mark for LMP1. For next year with Hypercar, if things come together the way in which uh, they are being mooted, two Toyotas, quote, at least two Glickenhaus, a quote from Jim Glickenhaus to my good self, indeed. I don't think a third car is yet nailed, but it's pretty clear there's conversations about that being a possibility. And Bicolis, which we believe is a single car. So that's five. There is still a prospective customer for the uh, Ginetta uh, with a single grandfather car, at least, is what my understanding is. A solid customer there. The gap is understanding exactly what they're going to do to uh, balance a much lighter and significantly but not dramatically more powerful uh lmp1 car which by the way is very significantly more aerodynamically efficient than the proposed hypercars uh with more weight and with less power the grandfathering package for that is going to have to be very substantial indeed and i'm not aware 
that we've yet heard what that might look like. That might be one of the limiting factors to numbers. But uh, do I expect there to be uh, substantially more than five or potentially six for some or other rounds next season? The answer is no, I don't. I think you're right. We are in a holding pattern to keep things chugging along until what everybody hopes is the cavalry that will arrive, which I don't believe will be 2022. One I think will arrive in 2022, by the way, is Peugeot. I think that car may be coming a little earlier than uh, was initially planned. I think they're pushing hard to get that out as quickly as they possibly can. I think we might hear a bit more about that in September. So um, the answer is, I'd say five. Um, I say there's a prospect of six, there's potential for seven, but I'd say five, and then potentially uh, we might lose a couple and we might gain a couple at some point in 2022 with Peugeot. Where do we go next, my man, in terms of categories? It's going to be Herr General, isn't it? I think so. And I think we're going to go to John Richter first with this. It's an SRO question to start. What? I know. After the entertaining three-hour race at Imola, he streamed last weekend, he said. Um, I'm left scratching my head as to the stark difference between GT World Challenge Europe and the struggling to fill the GT3 grid, GT World Challenge America. Not to rehash the SRO takeover of a Pirelli World Challenge, but what has happened. Now, that always presumes, by the way, that that championship had remote the kind of levels you had in GT World Challenge America in the, uh, Europe in the first place. Does it not? It does, and yes, we did not. John, two things, key things. Manufacturers were drummed out of World Challenge's GT category. That indeed was something that lowered the overall esteem and I would say prestige. Um, the prestige worldwide of a World Challenge GT America, GT America Challenge World, whatever. That took a pretty big knock. They did that intentionally. The belief was, listening to a paddock-owned series, uh, listening to those entrants and some of the other folks that they sought advisement from, hey, Cadillac's here and Acura's here and Bentley's here and Porsche's kind of sort of here and you know, there are enough McLarens kind of sort of here. There's enough of these factory meanies here to make it tough for us, true privateer, true independents, to be competitive. They were all sent packing. Numbers declined. There, I know, was hope, Graham. I know that there was ambition that there would be a great appearance of new entries from non-factories from true uh, independent team owners gentleman gentlewoman type drivers uh, team owners hasn't really happened and so there's still a thing there but it's not much of a thing strictly by comparison as john asks to what it once was this sprint x format too Again, it seemed to perk up a little bit, and there might have been something there, but it really hasn't become the the solid thing that they had hoped. So the other quick thing, too, which we've mentioned before, but it's still a thing, they've also pulled themselves back from trying to be a pro-level racing series that is vying for fans 
and attention and attendance like other major racing series here in North America. They've just said, hey, we're going to be more semi-pro than full pro. And I don't mean that they are working less, that they're behaving and conducting themselves in anything less than a professional manner, just saying that their approach is one where they're no longer trying to compete with IMSA, NHRA, NASCAR, IndyCar, whatever it might be. They went from being the challenger brand for many years and at times surpassing maybe some of the uh, other series as they've struggled a bit, or at least drawn uh, close enough to them to be highly regarded. They've just opted out of that altogether and really become a series for the entrance and people, whomever they might happen to be who wants to come along and play, come on in, cool. We're not really trying to be a come on fans. We're coming to your town. We want a million of you here. And all of a sudden you get something that, Honestly, John, if you're looking to do big events and feel like you're a part of something big, just often a thing, Graham, as we well know, with those who are driving uh, in a pro-am lineup or f- team owners wanting to feel like they're a part of the something big, I'd say that's been lost, John. And it's not by accident, it's by intent. And so you put those those things together in my head, and it equates to, they're exactly where they say they want to be. Um, I don't know if I would share that opinion in terms of strength and sustainability. I'd love nothing more than to see huge grids there, but I don't know if some of their decisions have helped them in this regard, but I, I'm not hearing them complaining like, oh, big mistake. We're going to change what we're doing. Where should we go next, Graham? There's a couple of, uh, couple of bit of low-hanging fruits out here. First one is going to be from Hope, Jose uh, Tapia. Also it known says, as Daniel is, Summerskill, by the way. Indeed, absolutely. Is the Brabham GTE still a thing? Not a lot from the Brabham Automotive Organization for uh last few months, but then again, I'm sure they're suffering, as we all are, um, with the downturn in industry. They've taken a sniff at GTE. They've taken a sniff at Hypercar, the Brabham BT62 is a thing of wonder. Fabulous, fabulous beast. We have got to get a microphone on that car, MP. It is an astonishing sounding thing. I think we already did. I think did we, we? Did yeah, I do that? Yeah, you did. I think at a British GT round, and I think it's sitting on my hard drive because I'm an ah, idiot. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't me. It was uh, Stephen Kilby did it at Rockingham. Okay, there we go. It's, a, it's an astonishing, astonishing beast. Um the other thing to, to point out here is, of course, their manufacturing base in Australia, and they are redefining lockdown. Um, ask our good friend and colleague, Jackie Warnock, who is gradually going to mushroom cloud uh, status, trying to get uh, back into her kind of working environment. And it's massively frustrating, I know. But we'll reach out to Brabs and find out what they're currently telling us about the status of the Brabham BT-62. Uh, thought actually occurred to me, by the way, this week, just chucked up on Daily Sports Car, the very briefest of news briefs. It says... Uh, briefest of news briefs. I like that. Indeed. Not even a uh, Y-fronts. It's a brief. Um, it's uh, the one of the support races for the WC race at Spa is a joint grid between the Sports Prototype Cup, which is a junior formula uh, out of the UK for radicals and above, up to including the new revolution um, 
sports car, but also with Brick Car, which is, if you're not familiar with Brick Car, it is uh, a, again, junior national endurance championship welcomes touring cars of all sorts and GT cars of all sorts. will feature an Aston Martin Vulcan uh, AMR Pro at uh, Spa. Last race of last season featured a Brabham BT62. So here's the weirdness. Did Brick Car get to a hypercar class before the FIWC oh. did? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Just got an email <laughs> press release here. Brick Car and IMSA form new alliance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, LMDH and hypercars coming to uh, the 2021 Rolex 24. Um, how fun. How fun. Let's see. Got a couple other here. I th- uh, well, the, the, the other one I was going to lob in here comes from uh, Scooby-Doo 22B. Daniel Summers uh, which, which is, a, that, that has to be a bit of a kind of, um, a, a pointer to the fabulous Super Impreza 22B, the uh, Pro Drive Special, the two-door car. Any sign of the RX9 GT3? Mm. Now, I don't think we're going to see an RX9 GT3. Wouldn't be remotely surprised if we saw an RX9 LMDH. Yes. And as for sign, sign of the beast. Sorry, we heard some uh, Iron Maiden on the drive home today. Uh, yeah, I'd look, and I think the twenty-two B. Why am I thinking? And why am I thinking that's a Nissan motor designation? I don't know. No, no, no. It was the super. It was the Subaru, the two-door Subaru. Subaru yes, uh, yes. The special that Pro Drive built for uh, on the back of the rallying program. Fabulous piece of kit. I should have known that. Uh, okay, I'm going to grab a couple more here. Where are we going to go? We're going to go to Michael Miller at Mad Mike 294 with the announcement of IndyCar doing a doubleheader on the scheduled SRO weekend at Indianapolis. What are the odds of the eight hours being canceled? Better yet, could IMSA join IndyCar at the Speedway instead of SRO? Well, that's not nice. I mean, you know, we like the folks of the SRO. Um, I've heard nothing about it being canceled. Uh, keep in mind that this is a business deal done between the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the SRO. Uh, to my knowledge, the SRO is paying for that. So, yeah, granted, the guy who owns the place is the one who does also owns IndyCar. It's decided that IndyCar will be there now doing a doubleheader, but I don't know what the schedule is. I would suggest that since the SRO was the original date holder and i believe also still paying for the privilege to be there i would expect indycar to actually minimize itself accordingly to get its business done and leave uh, the sro in a really good place so if the sro eight hours on a sunday uh, which i think it might be uh, i would assume that indycar would get its double headers out of the way beforehand instead of doing something that maybe gets in the way or detracts from the SRO. So a guess, but that wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Uh. I, I, hope they, I hope they do get a good grid for that race. They've been, you know, after fantastic efforts from SRO to, to keep a meaningful GT World Challenge global calendar together, they're clearly struggling in a couple of areas now, not uh, challenges uh, with you know, no pun intended at all of their own making. Uh, I I do hope they manage to get a meaningful calendar together. They've done very well indeed to claw 
grids together in a variety of championships that by any other measure would have been utterly decimated. Um, got good people trying to do good things here, and I hope that they can get the IGTC uh, races that remain on the calendar uh, away, clear, and successful. Good luck to them. Daniel Michael Steenblick, uh, Summerskill <laughs> says, Hey, gents, long time IndyCar fan, but your podcast here is getting me interested in sports cars. Is there any Quite right, good place or resources on the interwebs that a canner should go to? So that I can learn better what all these damn classes and series are about. <laughs> Says I can't keep up right now. LMP, LMP, and Kebab, and GTD, and Optimus Prime. Hey, you pretty much named, named them all right there, Michael. There you go. Uh, that, 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 that this, right there, IMSA 2021. There you go. Yeah. Uh, this is something we threatened to do and haven't done. And I don't know. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's your next assignment on DailySportsCar.com, Graham. It's, it's what are all these damn series? Uh, Let's put it this way. I'm going to say really, very quickly, Michael, don't be necessarily confused by what the classes are called. The generality is that you are dealing with probably no more than five or six different types of car globally in the series that run across any kind of borders. And they're going to be LMP1, LMP2, LMP3, GTLM is GTE, uh, GTD is gt3 and it's called all sorts of variety of other things i did promise i'd do this and i'm going to write it on the little list now and make sure that that gets done in the inevitability that we get another crashing lockdown in europe soon okay so i need you to do as we sometimes do unplug and replug your headset we're halfway between 50 and 55 minutes we said we we're going to do an hour so we lied yet again we still have fun to do uh, i'm going to grab one or two quickly to close general okay. and then we will move on and get to as many fun as we can and say goodbye uh rob chalmers your note here about bmw displaying their 2022 m4 gt3 do they know something we don't uh yes uh that wasn't one of the two i was going to take james counter <laughs> Stefan rattel gets a carbon fiber splinter one day decides to ban carbon fiber from sro regulations with this help cost savings long term by hopefully encouraging use of cheaper materials or would it have only minimal impact uh, I'd say somewhat minimal because the skills, the how's this? You could go to fiberglass, and fiberglass is cheaper than carbon, but there aren't as many folks who know how to do uh, fiberglass repairs there once was. Uh, you could go to metal. You could say aluminum. There certainly aren't as many people that know how to shape uh, that or fix that in the field. So. Uh, I would say with the way things have gone for the last couple of decades, James, most teams have their carbon repair kits with them, have people who know how to do that on site, uh, or you can go to the trailer and buy a spare. I get that, but it, we're kind of in a place where uh, carbon's the way to go. Uh, going to close here on my pal, John Ranjow, who submits regularly for a week in IndyCar, um, asking about Miles Rowe, young African-American kid, the first kid chosen for IndyCar's new Race for Equality and Change program who just tested on Monday at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, I was curious why Trans Am superstar Ernie Francis Jr. wasn't selected. Easy answer there. I am unaware of Ernie Francis having significant open wheel experience. And second, uh, the kid Miles Rowe was matching, if not beating, IndyCar star Indy 500 winner Will Power in karting. And it made Will realize that, holy crap, this kid's good. And then he saw him run out of money and just bookmarked in his head that if he ever had a chance to try and help him, he would. 
here we go. Miles was the first to test. So that's pretty cool. What you ask here is, um, are there any talks behind the scenes to uh, maybe have Ernie Francis Jr. joining the next phrase? Uh, phase was he ever approached? You also ask, are there other plans such as an IMSA uh, Drive for Diversity style program in the works for him or anyone else? Um, not that I'm aware of in any way, shape, or form, John. Uh, I've said before that I think Ernie Francis Jr. is phenomenally talented and deserves a look in by manufacturer teams and just independent teams and IMSA alike. This kid is just super skilled. As for the does IMSA have something coming, I can tell you this, and this is all I can say. Uh, I had a about a 45-minute phone call with the series on this exact topic. It was all off the record, and so therefore all I can tell you is I have inquired about this, and at the point where such things are formalized and presented, that would be something coming to you all from IMSA. So we are now moving to the final category, unless you want to go back to one of the other ones since you select, but in the time attack episode, fun. Where do we go, Graham? Where do we start the fun? Let's kick off with at Stacy UK. What's the weirdest thing you have reported or commentated on? Now that I, I'm getting, that could be could cover all sorts of things. I covered Grand Am, so yeah, that, that's <laughs> fairly bloody weird. Yes, boy, uh, slightly above shopping cart races. Um, okay, so since you read that to me, I'll say. I went to Sonoma once to cover a Formula Drift event. Oh, that and it, I I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal, but I was definitely fish out of water for sure. What about you, Graham? Um, I've covered a four minute slot car race uh, for TV, <laughs> um, but the the weirdest and it's weirdest in the nicest possible fashion was I was privileged to be asked to be part of the um, broadcast team for the inaugural Race of Remembrance run by, in the UK, we have a fabulous charity, uh, Mission Motorsport, run by uh, ex-major Jim Cameron uh, that looks after our uh, injured ex-servicemen and their service women. And they established some years ago uh, a thing called Race of Remembrance over our memorial weekend, uh, Remembrance Weekend. And that race has a completely unique format race races through the morning um and just before it's about quarter to 11 o'clock uh the cars come in um line of stern down pit lane to park up on pit lane at which point the drivers include many uh ex-servicemen and injured ex-servicemen either as drivers or as pit crew and have the most astonishing um remembrance service I've ever had the privilege of um, of both witnessing, taking part in, and having the privilege to describe. Uh, it's a, it's not a funny, but trust me, it's extraordinary. And you know, many colleagues who've followed on and have done that same event with me have either, if I've been there at the time, and I have been for a number of them, have shared those moments and those tears that inevitably come at times with the, the level of emotion there. Um, or indeed, for the years I've not been there, I've been quick to call to say that was just extraordinary. If you're in the UK and you're around 
the North Wales area uh, on Remembrance Weekend, go. You will not regret it. One, it's a fantastic event. The, the camaraderie is fantastic. The racing is great too. Uh, Anglesey Circuit is wonderful. But if you've got you know, a feeling bone in your body uh, on that most special of weekends, trust me, you will not waste your time going there. That, that's my answer. Sorry it wasn't So much for one. fun, Goodwin. Good no, Lord. sorry. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a member of a service family and it, it spoke to me. Of course, of course. Uh, right Turn Lover, also known as Right Turn Summer Skill. Scones UK yep. has decided to settle the old cream first versus jam first dispute once and for all by having two competing Le Mans entries. Which cars and drivers are going to race for which side and who wins? I'll just throw in here. I have no idea what the heck you're talking about, so I hope, Graham, you can uh, answer this. It's to do with scones, and it's to do with the, oddly enough, I speak to you at the moment, sitting in the lounge of um, a little holiday home, Trudy and I, just away for a long weekend in Devon, visiting my son, who lives just down the road from us, in beautiful west country of the UK. And I'm not going to get into this, but Devon and Cornwall, counties that are, um, you know, alongside here in, in the west country, have a very differing view on whether or not you put the jam or the cream on a scone. Uh, scone, as we say in the north of England, first. Is it jam first or cream first? I'm not quite sure what he's asking. What question he's asking here? Uh, it's a debate, you know. Two competing Le Mans entries. I guess the winner is right, kind of thing. Cream versus yeah. jam. Right turn lover. I would say, uh, uh, put the bottle down and or. <laughs> Put the lighter down, my friend. We love you. Uh, but, yeah, no more medicinal supplements for you there, pal. Um, Joe Izzo. we're sta- care who I offend. It's cream first, jam later. Yeah, there you go. I, you guys are so cute. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, Joe Izzo, we're going to stay here in the realm of food. Okay, not start another food debate, but I will. Came across this on the interwebs. Ketchup-flavored ice cream. Heinz sells kits that turn savory sauces into frozen treats only sold in the uk what kind of taste buds do hashtag you people in the uk have so this is for you but there is one condiment in the world that my wife knows if we do not have multiple gallons stockpiled we've got issues and that's ketchup she and i'll admit in my world, it's a basics, one of the basic food groups. Um, yes. So as someone who loves the fla- the taste of ketchup more than possibly anything else, the thought of ketchup flavored ice cream makes me want to vomit into my coffee cup with cream and jam. Yes, right. Um, I'm going to take no coaching from uh, our United States friends on this one, bearing in mind the first place I tasted Garlic ice cream was at what is that fantastic restaurant in San Francisco? Uh, Stinking Rose. Yes, what a fabulous, fabulous place. Taken there by, uh, as I recall, Graham Tyler and may well have been John Hindoff back in the day after covering a race down at uh, Laguna Seca. Um, I've never come across this, uh, but I am very fond of a new ice cream flavor that I came across just for the first time today from Ben and Jerry's, which is uh, post-COVID cancelled wedding cake flavor. Oh, my gosh. So can we commit you 
or ask one of our listeners in the UK to take the ketchup flavored ice cream challenge and tell um, us, describe it. We need someone to consume and then write as many words as you need. We, we try and keep the questions short so we can get through as many as possible. We're going to give you the green light to give as long of a description of the experience, but not right after you tasted. We want 24-hour moratorium to see what happens to your digestive system as a result because I think your innards are just going to be throwing up their hands saying, Dude! What? If only it could be Daniel Summerskill. There you go. Uh, uh, Let's see. Jeremy Charette says, Last year I discovered, of all things, a vineyard between turns 10 and 11 at Watkins Glen. What's the most unexpected thing you've seen inside of a racetrack? Graham Goodwin. I once, I once was in a paddock when no one complained about BOP. <sighs> in fairness, it was in lockdown. There was nobody there. But, um, but it, yeah, the most unexpected thing I've seen inside of a racetrack. Wow. That's a cracking. Can we come back to that one? Let me have a think of that. Uh, I mean, I guess the natural answer for the show is a hammer-wielding Frenchman, but, um... Uh, uh, I have to say, a completely unexpected for me, but not because, only because I didn't know it was there the first time, was the original banking at Fuji, um, which is an astonishing sight if, you know, if you've not seen it. Um, <sighs> something inside a racetrack. I can give you one that didn't actually happen, but it was presented as if it did, Jeremy. So this would have been 2008, I think, American Le Mans Series season finale-ish uh, at Petit Le Mans. There was a woman whose name I don't remember. She was kind of a pit reporter, pit runner. Um, I don't remember if she worked directly for the series, gathering notes and intel for... Uh, uh, Lee Driggers and his team or what, but uh, she was just always present and she was a bit of a gadfly and she loved coming in at the end of the day into the media center and holding court among the media to tell us about all the things that she saw. I knew some of them to be true and th- these weren't normal observations. These are like, oh, here's some secret special things that I saw and I'm going to share with you media guys. And uh, again, kind of some folks love being the the tipster, the one, you know, with the answers that no one else has and, and feeding reporters and such. And so she'd done that at however many races. And I'll admit some of the things she mentioned turned out to be true and like, all right, cool. So she comes in, I think this was a Friday, whatever it was Thursday or Friday. Elio Castroneves driving for uh, the Porsche RS Spider Team Penske effort, right? Uh, not full season, but um, starring for the team during Petit Le Mans coming in, you know, full IndyCar championship for him. But he's in the midst, Graham, of his big tax evasion thing. And, you know, the U.S. feds are going after him. And, uh, boy, it's, you know, could this end his career? And he owes millions of dollars. And it was all said to be you know, uh, inappropriately handled by his business manager, and it wasn't really his fault, but who cares? He still owes the money, and there's this whole big furor. So she comes in and says, did you see? And it's one of those things, brother, 
where when you start off with that and you leave nothing else, it's clear that there's some nonsense about to come because it's wanting to bait the hook so heavily. Oh, did you see? And leave no other details. And so everyone's like, oh, okay, boy, you've got something big to tell here. And so just wanting to set the stage for how important this was to be. And I don't know if anyone really bit, but I kind of looked over and I'm like, what? Uh, well, did you see there were three black SUVs that pulled up in the paddock and some agents got out and grabbed Elio Castro Neves, federal agents, to, you know, about his tax case and, and threw him in the SUV and drove off. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, nah, didn't see that. That might have stood out. That that's certainly something that might have caught some folks' attention. And I know, actually, coincident, just pure coincidence. Uh, I've got his phone number. I can call him, uh, and we can ask, or we can talk to some of the other folks at Accurate or at Team Penske, the Porsche RS Spider program. But no, didn't see that. Uh, and then she kind of goes, oh, yeah, and boy, and there was a big this and a big uproar, and oh, and he didn't want to get in the thing, and there was a tussle, and finally they threw him in and drove him off. So I'm just letting you know that there's going to be, you know, if you want to act fast, there's a little scoop there because they're going to have to find someone else to be the third driver. Ryan Smith, who was part of the ALMS PR team at that time, he's somewhere nearby and listening to all this. And it was just head down in hand with the come on, man, kind of look. And so whatever it was, and this is me being a little bit of a jerk, I don't remember exactly how, but I kept kind of asking more questions because clearly this 100% fabricated tale was just there was more delight to be had. So I don't remember the other things. Uh, that were added to it, but it was embellished plenty more ways. So in my whatever day notebook, I just happened to write about it. And again, I apologize. I don't remember her name, but uh, just happened to write about this complete fabrication of uh, federal agents sweeping into the road Atlanta paddock with three black SUVs, agents getting out, ripping this, this tiny Brazilian off of his feet and, into the truck and throwing them, driving them away. And boy, his world's turned upside down. Team Penske screwed, uh, breaking news at nine. And none of it was true, but it was so awesome to just picture this. Like this sounds like some sort of, you know, pick the movie where the bad guys show up in the SUVs and throw the, in the person into the vehicle. And then, you know, follow for two more hours to see how you get the person back or whatever else. It's as if she just watched one of those type movies the night before was like, Oh yeah. Elio. Yeah. This would be a good story. We'll see if any of these morons bite on it and write about it. And, uh, no one did. I just documented the fact that this, uh, really silly story was told. I'm not saying it had anything Graham that was related to the, this telling and this fabrication, but I do not recall her being around the following year. So uh, I think she might have been looking for the 
the proverbial mic drop of fabricated stories to the media and uh, knowing that might be time over for her. So sadly, I guess happily for our pal Elio, but sadly, this thing didn't actually happen. But if someone was really aching for some, quote, breaking news, um, they could have broken one that was indeed truly broken and uh, never actually functional. Right, we've got one more to go. It comes from Trevor Gagola, who says, Sports Club Broadcasting has been a discussion in his group lately. Trevor doesn't say which group that yes, is. Yes, is this... I uh, think it's more than just Trevor. Men who like broccoli. It, it, I hear <laughs> this is a massively pontificated topic in the Men Who Like Broccoli discussion group. So thanks, Trev, for the, weighing in. Do tell us where that that group is, uh, Trevor, and um, I will be happy to contribute. Uh, it says, obviously... There is some bias on the podcast. Really? What? No. But if you had to pick one sports card broadcast all-star team, who would it be? Right. Okay. Two commentators, one pit lane reporter, one camera operating team, IMSA, TV, Eurosports, etc. A sound team can be any era, any part of the world, any event you would like this team to host. Um, Well, first of all, he says, fill the template. Which again, that could be a men who love broccoli group thing. So it might be a complete template. It might have conflated that to be not template, uh, but complete template, but template completed and conflated. Now you're a pretty regular commentator. So should you disqualify yourself, or does that make you extra qualified? No, no, certainly from one and two, I completely disqualify myself. I will, however, wade in on the subject of pit lane reporters. Okay. well, we then, have had then absolutely we should, awesome ones. Yes, we should go in uh, order, though, because Trevor. Uh, okay, uh, you crack up. And quick question on broccoli, by the way, Graham. Here in the <laughs> U.S., not uncommon to serve broccoli steamed, first of all, and in terms of some sort of condiment to dip it in, mayonnaise. Does is that a thing at all that you're familiar with? Does that disgust you? What what do you that, what, what's going on? I'm feeling ill just thinking about. It. I thought you were, this was a, this was something where you were going to suggest replacing ketchup with ketchup ice cream, but ketchup uh, and I, mayo I, ice cream. I I do like broccoli actually. I, I do, do as like well. mayo, but Trevor, the two of them. Tell thing us is, where I to like join. Chocolate. I like chocolate and soup, but they don't get together either. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken noodle chocolate soup at the uh, the Goodwood household. All right, uh, two commentators. Stickers bar in that other. Right, you crack on with that. Yeah. I will say uh, the dean of American motor racing broadcasting, and I realize that that's paying some disrespect to longtime NASCAR announcers, but I will absolutely put in the number one slot good friend, dear friend, Bob Varsha. Oh, yeah, baby. Uh, I mean, yeah, they, there's just none better. Uh, encyclopedic knowledge, amazing delivery, and just if I could come back in another life as Bob Varsha and be good at commentatoring as him, I would be a super happy guy. Uh, Let's see, other commentator? It's interesting. I'm trying to think uh, across the years, uh, having followed this for many years, 
I, since you're going to do pit lane reporter, yep. I will, cause I was going to throw him in as pit lane reporter, but you're going to do pit lane reporter. I'm going to throw in, and this is the balance, which is what you need. If you have a, a two person commentating team, Bob being the, the Dean and also the ringleader, I'll say our man, Justin Bell. He brings, obviously, the comedic side and the quirkiness and whatnot, but those two representing such different styles, yet immense knowledge, truly immense knowledge together. uh, Yeah, that is, it hasn't always, it hasn't happened as much as it should. Quite often, Justin would be on pit lane somewhere and be Bob in the booth, could be Lamont or whatever else, but... Yeah, those two, I would say, would have me watching every race, never feeling like I got old, and probably never feeling it could be better. Okay, uh, on the Pitlane reporter side, I'm going to go um, for one of two um, total professionals, I think, uh, both of whom have had the privilege to work with down through the years with uh, with Radio Le Mans, uh, back in the day, and since then with various broadcasts one now retired graham tyler i thought was just a, an amazing pit lane reporter one uh not retired in a johnny molem sort of way that he has retired but sort of not retired then on retires again and that's joe bradley i think the pair of them are massively entertaining very knowledgeable great broadcasting voices clear as a bell uh, concise, get to the point, know what they're looking for, know what they're looking at. And I cannot recall a, a, a race with either of those guys in pit lane where I didn't come away more entertained and more informed. Wow. I will just offer two, one who European based, but a huge name here in America, and that being Andrew Marriott. Uh, oh, yeah. I know that he has his detractors and whatnot, but good lord, that man—that uh, man I'm knows where all a, the I'm bodies give, are buried. I'm going to give you a massive Andrew Marriott moment, um, which involves a pitlane reporter who wasn't Andrew Marriott. Andrew, rather thrown in the deep end as a solo uh, presenter on the European Le Mans series some years ago. Uh, it was a contract that was how can we put this bid rather low. And uh, Andrew was given the poison chalice of doing a four, I think three hour race at that stage solo and was gifted a, a pit lane reporter of, I have to tell you, was utterly horrendous. I have no idea who this person was. I've never seen her uh, before nor since. And Andrew, God bless him on air, said after one particular horror of an uh, attempted interview in the pit lane, said in his in, in, in fantastic tones, I have no idea who that pit, writer, pit lane reporter is, but she's absolutely terrible. Wow. Well, I guess I'm never dressing in drag again because I wasn't <laughs> aware he said that of me. Can I also throw in, and this is just pissing off a lot of other friends who are pit lane reporters, <laughs> um, Jamie Howe. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. she is the Bob Varsha of pit lane reporting, a woman with, oh, she's better looking than that. She is someone who studies to a point that is almost ridiculous. Her not, her yep. depth of knowledge is ridiculous. 
every time the camera is trained on her or you just simply hear her voice, whether it's the kernels of information she shares that she has gleaned on her own, or if it's putting a microphone in front of driver or A or team, you know, strategist, engineer, whatever, the questions that she asks, every time that woman's voice is heard or face is seen, a sports car broadcast, she's been doing a lot of NHRA as well, but you just go, wow, me know more, me smarter, me grasp better, me have richer experience. So, yeah, uh, there you go. All right, so we need to get down to uh, we've covered commentators, pit lane reporter, although I must admit Trevor only gave us one option for pit lane reporter, and we mentioned 19. Uh, camera operating team. Uh, uh, I don't want to say there's one man. There's one man and only one man. Is that a person who possibly sits atop things and uh, he has a last name that is very compact in terms of letter requirements? Uh, Yep. That would be Rooftop Ray. We love us some Rooftop Ray. Yeah, Rooftop Ray Wenzel Jr., fantastic stuff. Um, Those of you that haven't followed this, this tale... This comes from the days of the return to the uh, Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona by the what is now the IMSA Radio, IMSA TV crew. Uh, then uh, back with the Radio Le Mans crew coming back to uh, Daytona. And during the night sessions atop the uh, Daytona stands was Rootop Ray Wenzel. And I have never in limited light, Marshall, seen one guy work so hard and so effectively to cover an entire racetrack in the dark. Um, quite staggering what uh, what Ray actually uh, achieved at that time. Um, freezing cold, by the way, up there. Absolutely bitter cold up there. And I think he was doing, is it six or seven hour shift up at the top uh, there in challenging weather conditions we simply could not have done a tenth of the job we did without that assistance at all. Final question here, sound team. And I don't know if that is meant to be the audio mixing team bringing us the live sounds during a broadcast. So that, and I'm just going to go back to the top and read. Uh, broadcast, yes, yeah, so this is a broadcasting question. So we're, he's not inquiring about radio hosting, uh, I, I take broadcast and I mean television since we have examples thrown in here of uh, Eurosport, NBC, etc. So is there I a... I would say, by the way, Eurosport do not do uh, the sound and production. The only thing Eurosport add to WC, for instance, is their own commentary team uh, because the rest of the mix is provided to them. So if we're talking radio... I think there's a pretty obvious answer there. I don't know if that is the intended angle for the question. I think Radio Le Mans uh, each year at Circuit de la Sarthe certainly has distinguished itself as the uh, the best. If we're talking sound production and quality, that might be a little bit over my head because I don't know if I've really heard something that said, wow. The mix is amazing, and they're just got the ambient audio of the car zooming by that's so great during the broadcast that it jumps I, out for that reason alone? 
I, I will say this, the year-on-year improvements we've seen for a couple of three uh, different places are well worthy of mention. The two I will mention are the two broadcasts that have been involved in, to some degree at least, and to watch just how hard these people have actually worked and how hard they continue to work. But I'm on 24 hours. The difference in the quality of the product we actually get uh, now, albeit with an improvement in the digital kit that can be uh, thrown at the task, is just immeasurably better. It makes it easier for us to describe it. It makes it easier for you guys to watch it and listen to it. The other one, and it's been very rapid progress with this, is the Nürburgring 24 Hours, where there is, again, a extremely hardworking team who take huge pride in uh, what is a race with a massive national profile in Germany and an increasing European and indeed global reach. Um, these are properly talented people. I mean, if you get an opportunity to stand and watch, as on the odd occasion I do, in a kind of gallery of one of these big sporting events, take time, you know, shut the large hole, listen and watch with the other parts of your, um, how can I put this, uh, sensory anatomy, and you will learn lots about just how big a job these guys make look. How easy? Yeah, I agree. Although I have, I'm coming from a place of zero knowledge. Hashtag. Um, <laughs> how about we say goodbye in this episode? That's only one hour long. Don't let whatever you see on the current counter, listeners, lead you to believe it's any more than one hours. Uh, should you, who's not only our official selector of categories, but also the official take us homers guy uh, on this episode, this time attack episode brought to you by Daniel Summers Gill, uh, who else has it been brought to us by Graham as we say farewell and you hopefully say good night. Uh, I will indeed. I will say good night before we do so to Cooper Tyre Summerskill, uh, to Toronto Motorsport Summerskill dot com, uh, to Bell Helmet Summerskill USA, and the Summerskill Brothers, otherwise known as the Justice Brothers, of course. Uh, this has been the Weekend Sports Cars, uh, from brought to you from a cushion on a living room floor in Devon, uh, and of course the United States. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. We'll speak to you next week from Spa, where I'll be. By we, he means he. I'll be here in Ka, as in California. <laughs>